Good evening, everybody. Welcome to a fresh new week of Social Convos with your hosts, Sean Luke and Diego. That's me. Sean Luke, how have you been, man? How was your week? I've, I've been good. I've been good. I can't complain, uh, especially because the guest for, for tonight is somebody who is a, a really, really good friend of mine. So I can't wait uh, to talk tonight. Awesome. So let's get straight into it. Let the viewers All right, so, know who we're talking with tonight. So um, this is someone I met in, in San Diego in 2000. I think it was 2019. Uh, then we got introduced and uh, in the build up to the event because he was kind of like my senior, my manager, my boss for, for the event. Uh, I was like, who is this cool dude? Because I couldn't find any information on, on him. Like all the, the seniors that were in the staff of, of this event, and we're talking about social media marketing world in, in San Diego, all the seniors, they had like these profiles and it was very, they were branding their personal branding them like crazy. And this guy, this, this cool guy, there was like, we couldn't find out anything about him. And, uh, and then we actually got to the event and, he was actually cooler than I actually thought. So uh, we had a click. We had a lot of fun. Uh, we ended up having a lot of talks. He showed me around uh, San Diego. I've been to places in San Diego I didn't know existed thanks to him. And uh, he's also somebody that I look up to when it comes to entrepreneurship. Even though, as you might hear now, you're thinking like this old 50-year-old uh, guru who mentors like young entrepreneurs like myself. But actually, it's uh, in, when it comes to age, he's actually a lot younger than I am. So I thought it would be good to bring from a very young age and is really confident and is really confident about what he does. So I think it's time to bring in Jay Austin. Yeah. Welcome, Jay. Welcome to the show. Yes. Lovely setup there, man. Who made that intro video? Well, <laughs> this was the first Saturday after our pilot episode. I took the whole day. Um, right here, you, you, you see the yeah. table here, right? Yeah, we built a little set there. Just had some, what do we got around? Some tea. So let's make something with tea. That's a social wow. conversation, right? You have something yeah. over coffee RT, so it fit the brand perfectly. That's how that came about. I love that. You've got to use what you've got at your fingertips to create what you can. I love it. Awesome. So yeah. welcome to the show, Jay. So, uh, and, um, before we go straight into it, Sean Luke said you're shrouded in obscurity when he went to San Diego. <laughs> and we're talking about social media here. So... Can, can you enlighten us? How does that duality work? Because you being so mysterious in some place where people are pushing the personal brand so much. Yeah, to me, uh, I will look at what's happening on social media and be able to say whether I want to be a part of it or not. And so my whole thing back then uh, and now was we've got to work on spreading ideas and so when you think about it like that, you think about what platforms we have to spread ideas, whether they're digital or not. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you need to partake in those things if you don't think that it's healthy for you. So that's why I was probably so mysterious. Yeah, 
I think so as well. But it's also it's also being a little bit. It's not necessarily not being pushy, but I mean, not really relying on your brand to tell how qualified you are for a certain job. I think what we also discussed skilled labor like a couple of episodes ago, and and you found a way uh, already without uh, without social media, you already found a way to let people know. Uh, what your skills are and what why they can hire you and i think that's very interesting to know because often especially when we talk about social media marketing it's all about you have to be out there you have to brand yourself you have to post daily and and there are actually still ways that you don't have to do that that people actually can find out like okay this person is really really good uh in what he or she does without having to post that on a weekly basis online 100 yeah and i think that um, this speaks to a bigger philosophy of marketing that I think more people should follow because one, it's more effective, but two, it's less pressure, which is we tend to think that marketing is about climbing the tallest mountain and yelling as loudly as we can so as many people as possible can hear us. And so we create content like that. You know, it's like this constant hamster wheel, right? And you're like, well, we have to post every week. We have to post twice a day. We have to do this. I think the best marketing is the most spreadable marketing. And the way that you spread things isn't by yelling the loudest on the tallest mountain. The way that ideas spread is actually beyond you. So the question becomes, how do you have others spread your ideas? And I think one of the best analogies for it is what sort of secrets can I whisper to other people and that's different that's different like imagine being on the receiving end of a secret that somebody's whispering to you rather than on the receiving end of somebody with a megaphone who's yelling at you every week because they feel like they have to it's way different yeah the whisper sounds more special it makes you feel more special yeah yeah it yeah. does it, it, you know when you have some sort of like insider information or uh something that you know that others don't uh, it elevates your status and we're much more likely to share ideas that we feel either secure our status or elevate our status than we are to spread messages that don't feel like they're for us. Speaking of messages and you touched on marketing already, you're based in Kansas now and we've recently we had this big game and you just told us before we went on, we, we're not allowed to say that name, but we're going to yeah. do it anyway. The Super Bowl is something that, you know, um, every year it's a big event. It's like one of the biggest mar marketing blocks for companies, basically, to have a, be a part of that stage. So bringing that into context of what you just told us now, that messaging being loud versus being secretive and quiet, how do you think that translates to the Super Bowl? And I think the the community and hype it, that's built around it. Yeah, so um, first of all, I think that it deserves the hype. So from a marketing perspective, we're talking about one of the three largest media events in the world any given year. And so attention and you also have uh this very odd moment where people maybe they showed up for the game but a lot of them showed up for you 
And that, I mean, like, when does that ever happen as a marketer? Like, that's your wet dream, you know? Um, so I think it deserves the hype. But um, I still think that most companies overspend on not the ad placement, like the number of dollars it takes to actually exist in 30 seconds or 60 seconds or 15 seconds. But I think they're overpaying a lot of times in the production value of that message. And an odd thing happens in their mind, which is they go into this, this game and they understand what's in the palm of their hands and they've paid all this money to exist in this ad spot that they actually feel like it's their duty to yell as loudly as they can about their product or else it's a waste of money. But uh, I'd argue that even though the audience is humongous and the reach is humongous, there's still a way to spread a whisper, right? So like um, if anybody's familiar with the Mountain Dew commercial, did you guys see that one? Which, with this year? Yeah. No, we. I didn't see the Mountain Dew. I actually shared a lot of the ones that were shown, but I don't remember seeing a Mountain Dew commercial. Okay. So the Mountain Dew yeah. commercial was great. It had uh, an ex-WWE wrestler, John Cena, and uh, a couple other characters. And it was really, it was cartoony. It was like all these bubblegum pop colors. And they were selling a new type of Mountain Dew. And you're watching half of the commercial and it looks just like any other type of, you know, uh, soda commercial or pop commercial. But then about halfway through it, they let you in on a secret, which is if you're the first account to tweet at us with certain hashtags, how many n bottles of Mountain Dew were featured in the commercial, then you can win a million dollars. Ooh. That is some high stakes right there. Ooh. Yes. That to me is a great example of a whisper because now, even if they didn't share the actual video, people are talking about it because they're like, yo, help me count these bottles. Help me count these bottles. Yeah. Right. And so that's a great example of a whisper working in a place where most people yell. Okay, I, I quickly, before we go to the comment section, because there are already a lot of comments coming in, I, uh, what about the Cards of Humanity potato ad? Is that also kind of a whisper, or is that something different? No, I think, I think that that's part of a whisper, because um, one of the mistakes that I think big production companies make and big advertisers make, especially, is they make ads that they hope resonates with a wide 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 audience but the problem with that is the classic adage of when you speak to everyone you're speaking to no one and so <laughs> paradoxically like oddly enough when you're creating great ad content or marketing content in general um one approach to it is to actually find the audiences that you hope hate your stuff who say, I don't get it, it wasn't funny, that was stupid. That just means that they weren't in on it. And so the Cards Against Humanity one is select for the people who understand what the nuances of that game are and what it actually feels like to be sitting in a circle when you're playing the game, like that actual feeling that you get. And it happened to be about potatoes, you know, or whatever it was. So yeah, I think that's a great example of a whisper yeah. or a yell. 
Yeah. So, so short for those who don't know the Cards Against Humanity uh, Super Bowl ad, they just put a potato in display. And I think they wrote ad on it or something like that. It was just 30 seconds of a potato on screen. And that was the whole freaking ad. And that was like, they paid, they, you don't want to know how much they paid. And then the day after, um, the, the CEO of the company released a statement on Medium explaining why it failed and discussing the whole process of how to make a Super Bowl ad and how everything went wrong. And they, they couldn't find the right to, uh, potato and then with different other concepts, but they got canned. And the whole process, like he goes through the whole creative process and it ends up just being a potato. And that's kind of the, the whole idea behind the ad was. And this is, of course, a company that, that screws around with these kind of things. So that's that's also really interesting. So, Diego, do you want to share, quickly go through the comments? Yeah, definitely. Well? Um, we got uh, Greg, as always, first in to check out our audio and video. Thanks for giving us that feedback straight away, looking and sounding great. Um, Marvin is tuning in from Facebook. Really interesting stuff, great subject. Hedwig is a avid listener as well. And we got some a question here from Gregory straight up. And you touched uh, upon that thing of um, bad marketing or bad publicity. Before we go to this question, his second oh, question yeah, yeah. yeah, was, can you explain the perspective on there's no such thing as bad publicity? Um, I think you already touched upon it a bit because uh, that cards against humanity thing is like meme culture at its finest, and that's the internet. Um, but if you could elaborate a bit more on that statement, that there's no such thing as bad publicity. Yeah, so I think that's a lie that was produced by marketers. Uh, and so I think that there absolutely is bad publicity. <laughs> you know, I mean, like if you're in a position where, <laughs> where, I mean, it's the it's it's a great marketing line, isn't it? Like, no publicity is bad publicity. Which, like, another way to say it is like, um, all press is good press. And um, yeah. I think that like, I think that that actually speaks to one of the the illnesses that we tend to have when it comes to buying things and and consumerism as a whole is that we've somehow convinced ourselves that that like any amount of attention is good attention um but that that's obviously not true i mean like there's attention that we don't want and if we get it we're not grateful for it right so like i think that that might be that line is a symptom of that but in the marketer's defense in the marketer's defense um so i think that there if you if you possess a certain ability to constantly move the target, then no, pub no publicity is bad publicity, right? Um, and we can get political really quick, but those are the types of people who yeah. never suffer from bad publicity. Um, and then some of the most extreme people um, in whatever ideology, some of the most extreme folks they don't care about bad publicity either because people talking badly about them adds even more cohesiveness to the in group. Uh, right? yeah, and so, yeah, yeah. 
So that's where that statement works. But if you're like trying to sell a good product, then no, come on. No. Of course, there's bad publicity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically, is it? Do you mean like in an extremist form, or just your style or your brand is built around that in-group, knowing that there is a very big community against them? Both, both. I think yeah. it works yeah. uh, as well for brands as it does for cults. Yes. Okay, so I, I do want to jump back into that uh, because we are seeing a lot of tribal culture. So what, what I'm noticing in, 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 in so the social media space at the moment is you have kind of two fields. You have kind of the, the big mainstream, the, the Facebook Inc. kind of where everybody has to be there because we all have to be there because everybody's there. We have kind of these small tribal communities coming up in social media uh, platforms that are really tribal-based. So do you consider that a good thing, that, that, that these tribes are, are starting to exist? Oh, man, this is, this is such a nuanced question because, yeah. um, uh, so, you know, I'm in the U.S. where we claim that free speech is one of the inalienable rights of our country. Um, and with that freedom comes this challenge of trying to figure out what qualifies as free speech versus hate speech, um, what, what qualifies as as inhibiting free speech right so like for example when people who are more conservative minded in the u.s are taken off of a platform like youtube or twitter or facebook is that a publisher taking that voice away is it a private company saying well you're basically like a person who's not wearing a shirt in our store we don't want you is that what it is? So it gets very tricky. And, and so um, with platforms like Parler or 4chan or 8chan, these places that essentially exist without rules around what you say, there's a really hot debate about whether that is, whether that's something that should be allowed to exist. Um, so let me give you an analogy here. So like there are some people uh, who believe that people need a place to take out their anger so that they don't take it out on other people. And so uh, in the US, for example, okay. you might've had this in Suriname, there are these places called anger rooms. Do you guys have these? Uh, we have a rage room. We have a rage room here. Rage room, rage rooms, yeah. Yeah, yeah rage we have one, yeah. And you're like, basically you're giving people an outlet and the whole argument is like, okay, well, if they go and break these plates and hit each other with pillows and stuff, then they won't shoot our schools up. That's like the, that's the mindset, right? Uh, whether that works or not is just highly debatable. So when we come back to the digital era, we're trying to ask this question of like, first of all, what are people's rights? Second of all, what happens when we take them off of the most influential and mainstream platforms? Well, I can tell you this much their existing ideas don't just go away. If anything, their existing ideas are reinforced by the other people who believe that the platforms are out to eliminate their philosophy. And so uh, it becomes a, a really difficult situation in terms of like, like, what is the end goal? Are we trying to eradicate white supremacist ideas? Are we trying to, it's, it's a really complicated conversation, but personally, Jean-Luc, um, 
I think it's okay that these sorts of platforms exist because I'm the type of person who wants to know what somebody really thinks. That's very valuable to me. I want to know what you actually think, who you actually are, because I'm also the type of person who is willing to meet you where you're at. Um, but I don't think a lot of the world is really designed that way because it's really hard and I'm not even that good at it. But I think, I think that's where I land on the subject. I think that's, uh, before we segue yeah. to the next part, um, just some more shout out from Joseph. Uh, what's up? He's here every week as well. Um, Hedwig said the word bad itself says it all. Oh, finally got someone from LinkedIn. Yeah. Maybe it's not so much bad publicity, but it's controversial publicity being good publicity. Thoughts on that? So we substitute the word bad for controversial because controversial is all the rage nowadays because you got so many sides to any topic that you can't really distinguish if it's um, like a force of good or a force of evil in a sense. Yeah, Stephanie, I think that's a, a fascinating point. So controversial publicity. Um, so the way I'd approach that is that like a lot of publicity is naturally controversial if it's seen by a certain audience that just doesn't agree with what you have to say. Um, when you're on the creator side of things, I, there's, a, there's a word that we use for people like this in the US called provocateur, provocateur. <laughs> and these are people who some people believe uh, have cultivated a personality that uh, is uniquely designed to only provoke the other side into doing something out of anger and they're a provocateur. I don't, I don't think that that's the best use of your life personally, uh, to like live to be controversial. Um, but I would say that like going out and saying what you actually believe while remaining open-minded to different versions of the story, um, and, and like challenging yourself, I think that's fine. Um, again, I really do think it depends on the brand, right? If you're in brand, in brand messaging can fluctuate. If you're in a spot in your brand where you need to figure out who your truest tribe is or your fans are, then part of the strategy could be, well, what can we say to isolate ourselves from others, right? Um, but if that's not in the brand play, then I don't think it has to be super controversial. I think it can just be as simple as, like what Seth Godin says, um, creating messaging that basically says, people like us do things like this. And it can be non-controversial and, and it can make everybody feel a little bit better. It's interesting that you say that. I remember when Guy Kawasaki was in, in San Diego and he was just saying like, you should post on LinkedIn whatever you want. I post political stuff. I post search, surfing, uh, surfing stuff. And everybody in the room was like, listen, you're Guy Kawasaki. You have a million followers on LinkedIn. You can't do that. <laughs> you know, We can't. If we would do that, we would lose half of our following. So it's, 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 it's also something that you're thinking like, is it something that you are in a privileged position 
that you can say certain things and be yourself in social media when it comes to you having a, a certain following already uh, compared to somebody who's just starting out trying to figure stuff out. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the way that I approach that would be like, I don't really, I, I think like with great power comes greater responsibility, but what that means is different to everybody. You know, like one of the things that, that I think we have to realize just as like humans, not even marketers, but just like humans is that the person who we disagree with and like low key kind of hate, right? And we're like, dude, would you j just shut up? Like stop saying that shit. Um, that person might actually believe what they're saying as much as we believe what we believe. And so all of us lie, all of us fib to a certain degree, but we all believe in something as much as the other person believes in something else. Um, and so, so I think like when it comes to having status and how you use your social media, like that person who said that thing might actually believe that thing that they said, and they're not intentionally trying to mislead people. They, like, those are some of the most dangerous people, right? Not the charlatans, the ones who we can eventually find out, but the ones who like actually believe in bad ideas. Those are the ones who are like, oh no, 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 this is bad. This is, this can spiral out of control, you know? Um, but like with what Guy said, um, I do think that like, especially in, well, I, this probably exists all over the world. When you reach a certain level of money and a certain status of people around you, like the way that you view the world can change drastically. Like, like the choices that you're presented are just different than the choices that other people are presented, but you don't know that because you're not living their reality. And, and I think at that point in time, that's when you can get up in front of a, in front of like a thousand people on stage and say whatever you want to say. And there's really no consequence to it. So I do think that like privilege moves us away from the potential outcomes of our words you know that you wouldn't be able to get away with if you were just uh if you were just starting out in your brand okay uh quickly one question i want to tell gregory gregory yes we have a rage room in Suriname. I, honestly i have to pull up information on it but we do actually have a rage room in Suriname. so uh, i saw i've seen pictures and i've seen people destruct things uh destroy things so there's definitely a rage room here I did yes. not know that either. Well, the more you yeah. know. <laughs> Actually, I can think... we talk about this for a second? Can we talk yeah. about rage rooms? Yeah. yeah. Okay. One of the things that I deeply appreciate about a rage room is that it is a it, it is an idea with a very specific audience in mind. So when if you ever go into their marketing room and you're talking with their team i almost guarantee you that they don't care how old you are they don't care what your income level is what they're tapping into is well what do these people feel and where do they want to go with those feelings right what do they believe and where do they want to go with those beliefs and that's why rage rooms are appealing to a lot of people 
is that even if it's not like a huge overwhelming sensation that we would have, um, for me to go to a rage room and need it and to need it, it would be, I'm telling myself that I'm the person that can control my anger and can control my emotions. And I may have been working on this for 15 or 20 years and going to that rage room makes me feel better, not just because I can get my rage out, but because it proves to myself that I'm not the person to take this out on another person, but I'm the person who can take it out on this plate, this pillow, this TV, whatever it is. So I, I, I think that's actually a really cool example of how most brains can and should market. Figure out what they feel, what they want to feel, what they believe, and where they want to take their beliefs. This is interesting because I think people also use social media platforms like that. Like, for instance, Twitter. Like, people, like, especially in Suriname, a lot of people use Twitter to, like, do their banter and things that they wouldn't normally do on other channels and uh, on a, a burner account almost, not necessarily burner account, but definitely not a public account. And it's it's really it's really fascinating that you mentioned that because basically people are looking for a place where they can just let out. They, they, yeah, they can they can move away from daily life, and, and this is this is a constant companies as well because basically people are on social media not to connect with brands. They're on social media to be entertained to go away from their hard work. They want to relax. They want to enjoy. They want to have fun. Um, because it's it's in their leisure time, basically. And then then all come in the brands. And the brands are like, wait a minute. We know you're kind of relaxing. That's we can stimulate we can stimulate your brain. Let's start targeting you. Let's just dump all this information on you to get you excited about our brands. Whereas the general public is like, yeah, I mean, if it's good, I'll enjoy it. But it's not that I'm on social media constantly to be like attacked by brands. So this is a fairy, and this is this is one of the struggles that I'm struggling with as a, as a social media marketeer, is basically finding the balance between on the one side saying like, wow, social media is amazing because you can directly be in contact with your clients and you can directly message in, in the kind of style, the tone of voice that they appreciate. And on the other side, from a personal perspective, yeah, but it's it's really taking away all your privacy, away all of your control. So it's it's kind of this double-edged sword where, where you kind of, you can either view it as you're always winning or you can view it as you're always, always losing. Yes, yes, I agree with that. I think that like, um, well, did you guys see the, the documentary Social Dilemma? Yes. I did, yeah. So um, the social dilemma for, for our viewers who haven't heard of that yet, um, I recommend go watching it just so that you're informed on uh, the mindsets of the people who created these things and how their perspective on what they've created has evolved over time. Um, at the very least, it's interesting thought piece to sit and talk with your friends about. But one of the things that the main character of that film talked about Tristan Harris was that every time that we open our phone, uh, not just to social media apps, but to any app that wants our attention, what we're doing is we're taking this uh, very old, ancient piece of technology 
right? And we're pitting it up against uh, a supercomputer. And I think that that is something that it's, it's important that we at least recognize that that's happening. And you can make a decision about how deeply you want to engage with the supercomputer or not. But at the end of the day, we are not fully equipped to be able to withstand this supercomputer's main goal, which is to interact with you more. We're just not equipped for it. So you can put protections up against yourself if you want. You can totally give it up and go abstinent, or you could go all in. But I think that it's really important that we understand that it's us engaging with a supercomputer. And at the end of the day, that thing is going to outlearn us. It's going to figure out our ticks quicker. And I feel like we're at a point, without being too dystopian, I feel like we're at a point where we've passed the point of no return when it comes to understanding our ticks, understanding our facial structures, understanding our movements, and then using that against us to do certain things. Yeah, I've seen it as well, and I highly recommend it for anyone who hasn't seen it. And it gives us a perspective, especially from the creators of these big companies, how meta it actually is, because they themselves know what they're creating, but fall victim to their own creations. And somehow they're still doing it because it's like a vicious cycle that you've said, maybe we've reached the point of no return. And you've mentioned this word, a very key word, attention. Attention is the game that they're playing. That's the currency actually in this medium, the way I see it. Because um, when you're on your screen, that's the thing that they want. Not focus on your work, not focus on your family, but the attention to look at a screen, get this advertisement, and eventually get into a sales funnel to click through something and purchase that thing on Amazon that you don't actually need. Sure. Yeah, and I think one of the marketer's dilemmas that we have is trying to figure out what role we play in that society. And uh, so I try to encourage people as often as I can, as often as the topic comes up, that if you're a marketer, your goal is not to encourage more people to buy things or to join another list. Your, your responsibility is to create something that you could live with that like elevates that person's life. And that's the, that's the responsibility of a marker, uh, marketer. What's happening though, right, is that like, I think we've told ourselves a myth about social media platforms in that, that social media platforms today are the TVs of the 1950s and 60s uh, or the newspapers of the 20s, 30s, and 40s. You know, like we've, we think that it's just a substitute for those things, but it's not. It's not. That desire that you have to do the scroll down, to pull down, didn't exist 15 years ago. This is a new thing. It didn't exist. Nobody went to like the newspaper stand and was like, oh, I just have to feel a newspaper. I'm so addicted. Didn't happen. Uh, television, it got close because we became, uh, we put it on a schedule right? Hey, we have to be down by 6.30 to watch the show. Um, 
but new technology allows yeah. us to watch it whenever. But the the infinite scroll, this desire to do this or to reach for it when you don't have anything to reach for, that is not new. Or I that's not old. That is a new thing. That is a totally new thing. And so we can't like continue to lie to ourselves that this is a harmless medium, you know? So from a marketer's perspective, uh, social media is not the only platform. That's the good thing. It's like social media is still not the only platform for your art. It's not the only platform to do great work. But if it is the only platform that your boss is telling you to create on, then my suggestion, my recommendation is to always try to nudge the client towards creating more responsible content that you can live with. Yourself, man, you're a marketer and also an entrepreneur. So this actually segues, segues to the part of this, the main topic of today, building that confidence as an entrepreneur. And you having this, uh, the background of a marketer, let's say, you know all of this. And we got this up and coming young entrepreneurs who are basically walking into this space naked, unarmed. So how would you go about, or maybe if you could share with us your personal story on how you came to be the J that is meaningful and that wants that personal touch with the person to understand them, how did that came about? How can these young entrepreneurs develop that? Yeah. Um, I am not finished getting better. I'm not. Like you and, and I are meeting on this trajectory that we hope is trending upwards. But some people will go down. I might go down. Some people say same. Some people go up. So I'm not finished getting better. And that's a lie that we seek out. That's one of those few lies that we actually want to hear is that if I watch social confos or if I watch this piece of content that, that I can be them on the screen because they're done developing, they've figured it out. Look, I'm not ever going to claim that I figured that part out. But what I think I have learned when it comes to developing confidence as a business builder, the, the distinction between self-confidence and self-efficacy, self-esteem. There's a big difference between those two that's important to understand, okay? Self-confidence is situational, okay? Self-esteem is a status. Self-esteem is a constant state of being. This is more important to build, self-esteem, because if self-confidence is situational, then if you find yourself in a situation that you're not confident in, then you might just quit. You might just end unless you have the self-esteem that tells you that it's okay to not be confident. Does that make sense? Like, like we tend to seek out confidence we don't necessarily need confidence. We need the base rock. We need the, the, the platform to launch off of whether we have the rocket or not. Um, so here's an example, right? Okay. Uh, in the NBA, right? You have these tremendous athletes, right? But all of them were 
15 or 16 years old at some point in time, okay? Now, at 15 or 16 years old, there's a chance that they were not the best basketball player on the team, right? So if they went to their competitive team and they played and they got their asses whooped, they wouldn't feel that confident, right? But if they went and they played on their little brother's team with nine-year-olds, <laughs> they're pretty confident that they could win, right? Um, so that means that it's situational. Confidence is situational. But the self-esteem existed there. The self-esteem was like, I can go on any court and get better. That's my belief about myself. I can go anywhere and get better. Um, so I think that we have to make that distinction and not kick ourselves when we don't feel confident. It's not about confidence. It's about what do I do when I show up? What is my mindset when I show up? I'm going to get better. I'm going to outlast this. I'm going to have grit. I'm going to stick in there. And then ironically, that's how you develop confidence. You show up and 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 you start looking around and all the original people you showed up with aren't there anymore because they stopped because they let confidence or no confidence get in the way. Show up, show up, show up, show up, show up, show up, show up. You look around, you're like, holy shit. I'm like kind of the last person standing. I'm kind of good at this. But you only got that way because you showed up even when you weren't confident. We got quite some. That's all you. I got to say about that. <laughs> Mic drop. Sean, <laughs> <laughs> look, we got a, quite a few more comments that came in if you want to go through them. And then we can move yeah, on. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. And, uh, sure. Okay. So so let's see. We're do, Gregory, we're going to pick one out. I think we're going to pick this one out. So when, how does a marketeer decide to expand the client base and start targeting a different demographic? Do you uh, do you do it incrementally at one or at once? Or is there no clear answer? Just curious. Yes, that's actually a really good answer. My suggestion, Gregory, is, and I'm reading your question again. Okay. So, oh, sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So the very first thing, Gregory, is to not use demographic as your first filter, but in instead figure out what people who you're targeting believe about your product. So find their belief set first, and then you'll start realizing that a demographic matters at that point but go go for their mindset first um but i know i'm nitpicking so so how do you decide to extend um my suggestion is to always be trying new markets but to do it in a way where your risk is very low or for your client is very low so if you are a great marketer is a great observer of the world Right? The great marketer will listen and they'll hear things that other people don't. They will look and they'll see things that other people miss. And that's a skill. That's not intuitive. That's a skill. You can develop that. And so when you are there and you notice that a customer interacted with a product in a different way, and it occurs to you that you've never thought about pitching that product in that way, then develop a very small, cost-effective, low-risk way to explore that market. And then allow yourself to be surprised. And if it fails, it didn't cost you that much because you actually got a good ROI on it, right? Your ROI is 
oh, that's not our market. That saved you a lot of money. So, so that would be my advice is always be observing and then test the markets all the time and then allow yourself to be suppressed. Because if there's really a demand for it, people will let you know. I mean, you will, you will, there will be, it won't be one person. It will be like six or seven people will come up to you like, are you doing that? And then all of a sudden you're going to be like, is this part of my core? Should it be part of my core? And then, then it, it comes automatically. But what happens often is you also have these people that just want to hear you out. They, they just want the information. And then you think that they are a potential client or they are interested, but they're just trying to figure out the market. So they ask you all these questions with no intentions of ever uh, purchasing a product or a service from you. And then if you, you, if, you, if you perceive that as like, this is an opportunity in the market, then uh, you're at higher risk of, of thinking that there's actually no demand for it. But it's like six, seven people. Like, Can you do this? There is a demand for it because there are so sorry about that. You're cutting out a bit there, Shan Luc. Um, but I think we see where you're going with that. If there's the, the demand, people will, uh, you, you'll get a signal. And I guess the follow up to that, the thought I have is you have this data on your clients, on your marketing. And you're testing out these new waters. So you get the signals or not. But as a business marketeer, um, sticking to the theme of self-esteem and confidence, how do you integrate this hard data, factual data, these numbers, and this feeling that you have to actually deliver to your potential clients? Mm. Yeah, so approaching a new venture can be nerve-wracking. And so I think one of the best ways to view yourself if you are trying to spread an idea, whether you're a marketer or not, is to consider yourself a learner. That's your primary goal. I'm a learner. I just happen to create content to uncover what I need to learn, right? And so that's how I would use your data. And, and for Gregory and anybody else who is pondering, like, how do you go into these different markets? Here's a really tactical way to do this, okay? A very low-risk way for you and your organization to do this. Before you look for any new client, okay, find somebody who's used you more than once. And if you can't find that, then find somebody who has recommended you to somebody who they know. And every now and then, you actually find somebody who does both. They have used you more than once and they trust you. And so now they recommend you to their friends or whoever's around them. The reason why that is one of the low cost ways of entering a new market is because that person who bought multiple times might be buying your product or service or whatever uh, for a different reason than what they have recommended you for. So 
So you might actually find, if you imagine like a Venn diagram, you know, like the two overlaps. So what's most likely to happen is if you find a repeat client or customer uh, or somebody who's recommended you, you're not going to find two perfect circles overlying. You're going to find some sort of Venn diagram and that's a new market. That's a whole new belief set about your product that you can start tapping into and messaging. Moving forward with that, low cost going to um, using clients that have used you multiple times and actually expanding to these little communities. And we've mentioned it before, the tribes. Um, you create, in a sense, advocates for your service or product. But do you think or let me rephrase this. There's a lot of um, these little communities and tribes coming up and about, and these platforms are being built to actually differentiate themselves from the giants like Facebook. And one of the recent ones, uh, we've mentioned it briefly before, is Clubhouse. And there you get highly, highly influential people and uh, in the space. Uh, in this little room and you as a young individual who's just touching the waters, get the chance to be in the space with them. Do you think that, or what's your take on these platforms bridging, in a sense, the gap between the people way up there and the little guys? And how does that add to building these niche communities and holding it together. Hmm. Yeah. So um, remember how we were talking about whispers first. So Clubhouse is a great example that basically any type of brand can use of generating whispers that we tell to each other. Right. Uh, so for people who are unfamiliar with it, um, I don't know if it's still this way. Is it still this way that you have to get invites? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And you yeah, have, you have, have, have an iPhone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you have to have an iPhone. So that's already one group. <laughs> but then, um, but the way that Clubhouse built its in initial following and is still building its following is that you have to receive an invitation from someone who's already been invited to the platform. And the person who invites you only has a certain number of invitations that they can make. So they treasure it, right, um, in theory. And so uh, what we've seen with Clubhouse is that it felt like a status-raising opportunity. And it was to a lot of people. Like if you're the type of person who values being at an invite-only event, then you loved Clubhouse, right? You still love it. What's going to happen with the platform is most likely what's happened with a lot of other platforms, which is you're going to see what's called stratification. So you're going to see what appears to look like this, right? So like I have status because these people who I really value are on it. And instead of raising my status and equaling the playing field, it's going to go from this to this. The field is going to spread. That's what it's going to be like. It's already like that. 
in in different parts of of the app right so like if you were on in the early days then you had a ton of followers who signed up um to follow you even if you weren't that good of a content creator but if you're like a kylie jenner you know you're already up here so you're going to start seeing stratifications within clubhouse and the reason why i know that this is going to happen like i'm going to like stake my hat on it is because this happens at every exclusive club anywhere in the world <laughs> like a physical exclusive club there's always that group of people who can't stand to be with the people who they used to be so they got it like this and that's just really tough to manage but i think that they're okay with that i don't think that that clubhouse is like really freaking out about something like that i mean i'm not in their internal talks but but that's not in their model no yeah. It's not in their model. I think that it's not in their model. I don't think that's that's what's the app about. The app is about the idea that me and you and any person can just jump into a clubhouse and have Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg be a guest, and you can all of a sudden you're in like you're within reach of that person, which is kind of a, a, a version of Twitter 2.0 because Twitter in the beginning had kind of the similar idea that. Uh, you would usually not be able to reach out to Richard Branson, but now you can just send him a tweet and, and, and in the beginning he would even reply to it. You know, so I think it's it's basically kind of an evolvement, a more video format of how the early social media kind of made the connections uh closer. It's it's like you're 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 there with one one tweet. You can tweet something out and, and Elon Musk could retweet you or respond to it, and then it's like ah you know, and and I think that's that's something that I don't necessarily think that's a it's a, it is an evil. What I'm really worried about a little bit is uh, we're so into hypes and trends at the moment that if you if you can distinguish it, if you can distinguish that something is a trend, and understand that it's hype today, and it eventually either fades out, and you know when it's gonna fade out, or understand that it's not gonna fade out because it evolves in something else if you can make the distinction between the two you're fine but if you cannot make the distinction between something that's really going up and up and up and it's gonna crash in 30 days and something that's actually sustainable uh that's where we get into rough rough territory yeah and i think that's the challenge that distinction and something yeah because what jay mentioned yeah. especially following the social dilemma I, I quickly to if uh yeah um it's it's i'm gonna take you back to 1967 with uh, guy debar was this french philosopher and um he wrote the society of the spectacle and i think that at the time in the 60s he couldn't predict where we would be going with social media and and and, and mobile development and, and mobile technology but he already explained that we were living in a society of, of mass consumption. And kind of mass consumption was kind of taking over the way we live. So all of a sudden, your life is not about who you are and what you are about, but how you represent yourself. So you get these facades of people and companies that they look like legit companies. They look like legit personal brands, but there is like no, there's no depth to them. And... Um, and we we often even we get we become those people or we 
kind of made statements of representations of who we are, which are not filled with actual depth. And and once that happened, that's when kind of everything starts to crumble because certain people start having expectations of a platform, of a person, of a company, and it was built up. And that's the whole bubble system. That's why we keep talking about bubbles because every decade there is another sector or branch that just pops up. It, it becomes beautiful. And the big ones stay. Of course, the big ones always stay. But there are also a lot of big ones and a lot of small ones that just disappear and go bankrupt completely and completely crash. And I think that's more my worry than um, than than whether or not the platform, because the platform eventually, if it's good, it will work. We've seen that already. If a platform is good, it will work. It will stay around. But if it's just too much hyped up in the beginning, that's when really it disappears and crashes down. I think you got to make a distinction as well between platform and the community that gets into that platform or is around that platform. Because in the end, it's the people that make sure that this platform stays alive. And Jay said it, this stratification. If I had to describe it in another way, would you say it's a dilemma of scale uh, in a sense that as it grows, the tribe grows, the community grows, and then you get this bigger like gap between at first you are this close to each other, but the gap gets bigger as the community grows, and you get kind of out of touch with the core belief that started it. So in a sense, that is kind of uh, the downfall of it and then you you get other platforms that try to do the same thing so there's a dilemma of scale our facebook comes with the same thing our facebook develops something that's similar (laughs) right yeah and then they just get outfunded but i mean i think this is like i think you bring up a good point bro is that like this is a competition of incentives you know i think that like if Clubhouse wanted to stay very small and that's their choice, then they could make that choice. But I don't know if they are venture backed, like if they're funded by venture money, their investors won't allow that. Their investors will not allow them to stay as small as uh, they wanted. So, but this is true for like any tribe, right? Like if you run like a, a social good organization, like a nonprofit, and you don't really sell anything, but you're trying to spread an idea about a change that you want to make. For most organizations, there's a, a threshold that you can't cross without sacrificing part of your mission, part of the way you operate, or things like this. And so I think it's important for people who are listening, if you're running an organization, to figure out what is big enough what is big enough and it is completely okay if you do your work for the rest of your life and you do not attain the wealth that Mark Zuckerberg has attained. It is completely okay. Um, That is, it's almost maybe better if you don't, right? Like you wouldn't have to show up for Senate hearings and worry about all this other shit, but like what is big enough for me and Work really hard to maintain that right at the threshold so you can do what you want to do 
and you can leave this earth happy knowing that you did some good shit. Speaking of nice. getting big enough and actually deciding for yourself what you're happy with, um, I want to go a bit personal with you, with your what you're doing now, because during the last social media conference when you are physically here, you are still running this marketing agency. You had a decent team, uh, rapidly growing, but in was it late 2019. You kind of made a switch to a new company, a new brand, a new mission. So can you tell us more about what triggered that and how that went about? What's the mission behind that? And yeah, what's the the personal happiness factor in that of doing that? So at the time that we met down in Paramaribo and I drank far too much parvo and burgo and just had a blast um i was running an agency and we we're producing videos all over the world and it was super super fun um and i would not trade that time in for anything in the world what was happening was i would look around my studio and i would only see people who had a certain level of privilege that allowed them to become videographers in the first place. You know, it's expensive. It's expensive to buy your first camera. It's expensive to take the time to learn how to do this and buy the software and everything. And uh, I had a moment where I was like, you know what? We have this magical power. We have this camera. We know how to use it. We can tell stories. I want to start telling different stories. I want to start telling stories about social issues. I want to start telling stories about people who don't have any money. I want to start telling stories about people who are held back by things like racism or sexism or ageism. Those are the stories I wanted to tell. And so I just jotted it down in my book, you know, my idea book and put it on the shelf. Well, uh, what I decided to do, and I could do, I could have done this better. I didn't do it the best way. Um, and I wouldn't do it the same, but I decided to reroute a whole bunch of our resources towards creating stories about that stuff. And it didn't sit well with some of my other founders. Um, and I totally get that. And, uh, and so we ended up splitting the founding team and that was on my birthday in 2019. And my <laughs> remaining founder uh, was like, this has been a weird birthday. Let's go get some wine and we'll finish up. And so the guy's pouring us some wine and she's looking at me and she goes, I have a scary question. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, what? Because it had been a crazy day. And she goes, what if you don't do this anymore? And I was like, "What? wait, what do you mean? And she's like, what if you just like go and do that idea that you wrote down? And I was like, wow, okay, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> and it was like that. It was literally like that. Like, like, it felt like it was one of the most torrential heavy downpours in Suriname. And then all of a sudden, the sky goes, Whew. that's what it was like. And that idea was an idea that would basically take me to where I'm at today 
in launching another agency that focuses on uh, a really important topic here in the U.S. specifically uh, called mass incarceration. Um, and so we can get into that if you want. I don't know where you want to take it, but but that was the journey to starting that agency. I think I think we have to reinvite him uh, again, Diego. I think we definitely have to do oh. that. Whole yeah. episode, yeah. Um, so Giano joined in. Uh, I'm gonna go to the sideline questions first. Um, first one is, uh, yeah, we're commenting. So Giano, we're getting comments in from LinkedIn, from YouTube, and from Facebook. So that means that you won't be able to see all the comments that we're sharing here because some will be on another platform. And uh, Jay, shout out to the to the orange beanie that you're wearing as well. And then to get into, uh, whoa, this is a, a fair long text. So given the example of the bubble for every 10 years, uh, if, you, if you take every platform as something that's finite instead of something that's going to last forever, I think that's the mindset change will cause you to just use that platform for the best of your ability, learn from it, make an impact, while stay agile enough to move your core abilities and impact to another platform. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, I mean, if, if we would, if we would still hang on to Internet Explorer, we would feel terrible right now because this, I, I don't even know if, if, if StreamYard would actually run on Internet Explorer. <laughs> That's, uh, so yeah, I, I mean, it's true. Let's keep it at that. Yeah. Um, first of all, shout out to Diana. <laughs> like, you are my guy. Uh, we will meet up for drinks again one day. For sure, for sure. Um, and and to add to what he said, look, I think that if you are a creative person, that you should look at every new platform as a fun creative challenge. Um, and then from a legal standpoint, right? Uh, if you are a creator, work as hard as you can to always own your content or at least have usage rights. Like if you're working for an employer or somebody's hired you, try to negotiate that in so that you can look at this stuff 20 years from now and 30 years from now and maybe even make money from it. Now, if you're the employer or, or the client, you should own the stuff. <laughs> but what's, what's amazing is that like, for my creative people out there, there are a lot of creatives who don't understand how the legal side of creativity works. My encouragement is to fight for your rights to own the stuff that you create. That's your genius. Nobody else is gonna be able to create that the exact same way you did. So fight for your right to own it. If you're on the client side, fight for your right to own it because that genius is never happening again. But sometimes people leave things out of, out of contracts. And so if you slip it in there, then boom, you've got your portfolio. Yeah, so that's what Diego and I did when we started Social Confos. We both said we own the rights to Social Confos. Yes. <laughs> yes, I love it. I yeah. love it. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, this is, this is, and I mean, we got into it this with, with clients a lot, like, or, Oh no! The beginning, uh, yeah. Can you? Am I testing, 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 testing? Yeah. Um, in the beginning, we had issues that we wanted to use photos from our clients. There, they would have like our 
clients would have like a calendar, a yearly with 12. Those are perfect for it. Like, we're allowed to use them. <laughs> we don't have the rights to those photos. Like, what? How is that possible? So we're, we're really learning how to offer, which like we talked in the pre-talk about, learn reuse content, re brand content for a different platform. Just stage it around. Something this kind of video with three blocks of us, me, Diego, Jay, uh, you can't use that if you go to on TikTok. But what you can do on TikTok is take out like the best 15 seconds of a certain topic and post or stories. And all of a sudden, it's good content for that platform. But we're just not wired that we're going to transform Then, like, okay, we have something that's really great content, and we have to, uh, uh, yeah, re uh, edit the content in such a way that it works for the platform that we want to use it for. Yeah, you cut out there a bit, but I, I'll I think I summarize I'll summarize there. Um, there is a lack of this awareness on how the creative legal structure works. And I think me and Shanduk are even still struggling with it on how to actually go through that and splitting it up and all this media, there's so many creative commons laws, um, licensing. And this is something that scares a lot of creators as well because they just want to create. But if you want to get serious of actually running a creative business, these are things you're going to have to deal with. So I guess to close this off, um, Jay, what would be your one takeaway on how to jumpstart this, your creative venture or business without being intimidated by all this would you say just start and face it as you hit that roadblock or are there certain things you got to take into account when you start? Okay. I love this. Um, the very first thing is if you are trying to get paid for your creative work, put together a portfolio. It doesn't have to be big. Put together two items, three items that you create yourself. It may not even have to do with another client. So that's number one, put together a portfolio. Number two is get familiar with templates of contracts on Google. And here are the basics of the contract that you need if you're gonna send this to a client, okay? The first is that you are a contractor. The second thing is that you own everything until final delivery of the payment. That means literally if you're a videographer, everything that you've captured after you press that record button is yours until that client pays for the final version. Okay, this is really important. The second or the third thing is make sure that you have what's called usage rights. Usage rights. Usage rights means that even after the client owns the content, after that final payment, you as a creator can still use the content that you've created in your portfolio to help you get other clients. Okay, so portfolio, right? Then legal documents with those things attached to it. And now it's time to find your first client. Here's how to do it. 
you ask everybody who has already bought creative work. You, you find somebody who has already bought this thing. And here's why. You don't go after somebody who has never bought it, right? The reason is because you want to find someone who has experience working with a creative person who won't abuse you. New clients who have never done creative work will abuse you. And they'll abuse you for two reasons. One, they don't know how much work it takes to be a badass creator. That's number one. So they're just going to ask you for shit that they don't even know if it's practical or correct to ask you. So they don't know. And then the second thing is you don't know what it feels like to be abused yet as a creator. Um, and so you don't know your boundaries. You don't know exactly how to say to a client, no, I can't do that. Or no, it's in our marketing agreement that only two revisions come with the work. You don't know that yet. So if you find someone who's already bought creative work, go to them and say, hey, I think there's a way that you could improve this. Um, you can be honest with them. You don't have to lie and say that you've worked with all these big name brands. They might actually find that to be a valuable asset of yours. So go find your first client. And then once you find that client, take such good care of them that it would break their heart if they never worked with you again. Do not get on this roller coaster of finding three clients, 10 clients, 12 clients, because I'm telling you, you don't even know how to handle one client yet. So handle one client at an excellent level. And then before you even try to find another client, ask them to renew their contract. That's, that's how you start building your agency. Okay. So those are my tips. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I've told people this before. <laughs> yeah. So, so Gregory just joined in. He said, oh, I'm glad, oh my God, I'm late. But hey, I'm not. I'm hearing the good stuff. And he actually attests to what you just mentioned. Good. So, uh, so good stuff. Awesome. You know, that, that was a great, great concise summary and very practical. And I think if you get that sorted out, especially the legal part, you will automatically build that self-esteem and have that confidence when you end up in a situation that's not necessarily in your favor. Yes. And Diego, what will actually happen too is once you really take care of that first client, then you will learn a lot of things that your next client will be really grateful that you know. So I can't tell you how often I will approach a new client or they'll approach us and I'll say, hey, so um, if you've never been through this before, don't worry about it. Here are the next steps. They love it because now we are guiding them through the unknown, right? And, and so that's really important to clients. So, but it all happens, it only happens if you really take care of your first client. Awesome. I think that is a very good note to end this episode with. And, but before we roll out, Sean, look, anything left in the comments and final thoughts? Uh, final thoughts? Uh, I definitely think we should have a returning guest here. That's one thing. Uh, I want to thank everybody, like Diego always does, 
for commenting. It was really an interactive uh, evening again. For everybody in the comments on Facebook, on LinkedIn, and on YouTube, as you already know. So, also for Gregory, who tuned in a little bit late today, we're always on at um, nine o'clock every Tuesday, nine o'clock Surinamese time. But uh, I'll allow Diego to quickly tell the channels and the platforms where you can rewatch this, and then we'll close off with a final statement from Jay. Yes. So. Uh, as you all know, Social Convos is live every Tuesday, 9 p.m. sharp, Suriname Standard Time or 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for those in the U.S. or around the world. I think that's easier to uh, get. Um, the platforms are linked in YouTube and Facebook uh, and the website, of course. The official release of the full episode will be this following Saturday. So this is just some recap scheduling. And then it will be released on the website on confos.com and it will be pushed to all the mainstream podcasting platforms. So if you don't want, can't watch the videos, you can just in your commute or during your workout, put out the podcast and listen to that. Um, yeah, that's uh, most of it. Uh, we appreciate you all comment, commenting um, and there's more stuff to come. We are building this platform as we go. And every week, the feedback we get, it's really helping us build this up. So without further ado, Jay, uh, your final statement. What are you doing now? Where can people find you? What can people expect from you in 2021? And if you have a message, just drop another mic. Well, we do everything very quietly and a lot of the work is us-based um if you want to support it then you can go to our website which you guys can link to and sign up for our email list where you'll receive my notes every week these are candid sometimes funny most of the time meaningful posts about the criminal legal system in the us if that's interesting to you so that'd be a good way to support um my final words would be whether you consider yourself a marketer or another type of creator or not, I have five words for you. Create like you mean it. Only create the things that have meaning. Awesome. That was Social Confos for this week. See you next week. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.